I have. Can we say that in church? I've lost my awe of God even as a pastor. Every week getting up preaching. Somehow the, the awe-inspiring word of God became mundane. Being in it every single day of my life. And, and I have spent the last two years just going, okay, God, please restore. I'm begging God to restore me. And, and, and so I can't put my finger on it. I don't know what it was, but I would read and I would listen to sermon. You know, last year, Ken preached a sermon. I guess it was last year, preached a sermon out of Isaiah 6, and I preached that same text. So I'm reading it, and I'm listening to the text, and then I'm, I'm listening to, you know, I'm reading through Ephesians. I'm like, God, just renew this sense of all that I once had. I want it so bad. And, and then I, I went back to the beginning, and I went back to Genesis. And I have been blown away with the majesty and the awe of God in Genesis 1 through 3. If you have lost your awe, God, I beg you tonight, go back to Genesis 1, 2, and 3. It is just amazing. Genesis 1 opens this grand book that we call the Bible, and it says, in the beginning, God. Not only is there in the beginning God, but in the beginning God created, and we sang about that tonight. Uh, Blake had no idea what I was preaching tonight, and yet every one of his songs enveloped the message that God has laid on my heart. And, and we're going to be in Genesis 3, but in Genesis 1, uh, the first two chapters of Genesis are just filled with awe and splendor and majesty and wonder as God speaks speaks, and all of creation just comes into existence. The one and only eternal, holy, infinitely wise God created the heavens and the earth. And as an artist designs this picture, and he paints that outline, and then he begins to fill it in. In Genesis chapter 1 and 2, you just start seeing the colors come out across the expanse of the sky. And as his crowning achievement, God takes man and he puts him over, the world, over this earth and he's, that he's created and they're to care for it and they're protect, to protect it. And God says in Genesis 1.26 that they made, he made man in his image so that man would then be fruitful, multiply, and they would fill the earth, that they would cultivate the garden in such a way that at one point that all of the earth would be the Garden of Eden. I mean, that's, that's what paradise is. That's what we long for in the end when the new heavens and the new earth come in. It's going to be a new paradise, a new garden of Eden. That's what God wanted for his glory to fill the earth. Adam and Eve lived in this perfect world. They enjoyed perfect fellowship with God, with their creator, enjoying walks with him in the cool of the day. How awesome is that? I mean, you're talking about awesome. That's awesome. How many of you have seen the Lego movie? Yeah, I can't get that song out of my head. You know, everything is awesome. I mean, can you imagine being in that garden and everything is awesome all the way around you? There's no sin. There's no evil. There's no wickedness. There's nothing wrong. Everything is beautiful. God gave them this buffet table to eat from any fruit of the garden that they wanted at any time. Except one little tree. Except one tree in the middle of the garden. Don't eat of that one. Everything else is yours. Take, eat to your delight. Genesis 1 and 2 set forth the glory and the holiness of God. But as we come to Genesis 3... Everything changes. Drastic change happens. The story is no longer awesome and glorious, but there's despair and darkness that hits. It's going to be a different world now. We have introduced to us the idea of, of sin, this 
sin that enters into God's perfect holy world that He created. Sin is lawlessness. It is rebellion against God and against God's ways. And here in Genesis 3, we receive our understanding for all of Scripture of what sin is. It is rebellion against God. It is disobedience to the Word of God. But, so we have this introduction to sin, but at the same time, in the midst of this gloom and despair and darkness in the middle of that garden, there is a shining light that comes brightly shining through that darkness. And it's the grace of God. So tonight what I want to do is I want to argue from Genesis 3 that God has a plan for the salvation of His people in the midst of judgment. God has a plan for the salvation of His people in the midst of judgment, in the midst of the judgment of Genesis 3. And so we're going to do this by showing in verses 1 through 6 um, man's sin. Uh, Secondly, in 7 through 13, we're going to look at the consequences of sin. Next, we're going to look at the judgment of God upon sin. Fourth, we're going to look at the promise of salvation in the midst of judgment from verse 15. And we're going to spend most of our time right there tonight. Um, Hopefully, we can get through this real quick. And then verses 20 through 24, we're going to look at the hope that is based upon the promise that is found in verse 15. And that's in 20 through 24. So let's turn our attention quickly to verses 1 through 6. And so, for the for, because um, I am limited on time here, and I want to keep you all night. <clears throat> Although I was in Peru about a month ago, and those people wanted us to stay up till midnight teaching, and I was like, "Let's do it." So I'm going to say that y'all would be willing to do that here, right? Amen. Okay, maybe not. Um, so in Genesis three, we we see that the the serpent comes into the garden, and he begins to engage Eve in this conversation, and. In this conversation, Satan deceives Eve into questioning the goodness and the veracity of God's Word. And and so he comes in and immediately we see a reversal of the created order. Okay, so God created man. He made woman to come alongside of man, out of man, and then they were to have dominion over the animals. Well, in this section in Genesis 3, what we see is the snake, the serpent comes in. And he starts talking to the woman who then gives to the man. It is a reversal of what God created, what God had ordained. And it's through that we see this temptation unfold that leads to sin. Notice first that Satan twists the word of God. He says, um, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And so... And Satan doesn't take a very direct approach. He comes indirectly and and just twists what God has said. He's seeking to plant doubt into Eve's mind so that she will begin to say, well, God's not fair and he is unreasonable to put that restraint to restrict us like that. And, and, And Eve then twists the words of God when she answers him. She says, God said, That we can't eat. Matter of fact, God said we shouldn't even what? Don't even touch it. Did God ever say that? No. Go back to Genesis 2. God never said you can't touch it. But see, she added to what God had said. And so then, next we see the serpent completely contradict the word of God. Look at at what he says in verse 4. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. For God knows when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. What did God say? If you eat of that tree, what's going to happen? You're going to die. So, so Satan planted this, the, the serpent plants this doubt in her mind by, by just coming in in a very um, obscure way. And now he just totally contradicts the word of God. And, and so now Eve's already questioning God. And so now he just approaches her directly. You're not going to die. What he's saying is that God has has given you this command because He wants you to keep 
He wants to keep you from being all that you can be. He wants you to be limited in your potential. You you can be so much more. You can be your own God. We have religions today that actually propose that to us, that we can grow up and be our own God like Jesus. And so Satan turns God's good, loving command into something very wicked. And notice what happens, that temptation that Eve faced now gives way to sin. Notice what the text says in verse um, 6. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took its fruit and ate and she also gave some to her husband. Notice that she sees something that looks good. She goes after it. She's in hook, line, and sinker. It looks good. Yes, this can make me like God. I can know everything. I want you to notice something. 1 John chapter 2.16. Notice the correlation between the three types of temptation. John, 1 John 2.16 says, For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life. Notice this, Eve saw that the tree was good for food, the lust of the flesh, to feed her hunger. It was delightful to the eyes, the lust of the eyes, and then it desired to make one wise, the boastful pride of life. She gave in to the temptation. She eats, she gives some to Adam. The man was called to be the protector to be the head over the woman, and he sits right there beside her, in my understanding, listens to the conversation, and not one time does he ever intervene. He lets it go on. And now that sin has entered into God's perfect creation, joy is turned into sorrow, innocence is replaced by shame and guilt, ease is exchanged for hardship and pain, and where there was this once loving relationship between the man and the woman, they are now replaced by unnatural desires of lordship and domination, and then life is replaced by death. And since that time, since the time that they took of that fruit, all of humanity, Romans, Paul tells us in Romans that through the sin of one man, That's original sin. That has been passed down to all of us that are born today. Through his sin, now it comes into us. And we have this nature that is predisposed to fight against God. We don't want God to rule over us. We want to rule our own life. And that's exactly what Satan deceived Eve into thinking. I'm going to rule myself. That's the biggest problem that we have. We want to be lords of our own lives. And God says you can't. Because there's only one God. And he is it. And it's not us. And Paul tells us that there is none righteous. No, not one. All of us are under that sin. And so notice, if you will, in 7 through 13, the consequences of their sin. First, there are the consequences for the human relationship. In verse 7, then the eyes of both were opened. That in itself... In my opinion, that in itself is mercy. That God would open their eyes to the reality of their sin. That they would actually see the fact that I am in sin, I am naked. Look at what's happened to me. The eyes of both of them were open and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. Immediately their eyes are open and for the first time they they see nakedness. They've never seen that before. And for the first time in human experience, they are feeling shame for how they look. And so they immediately go and clothe themselves. They've been enlightened. They have become, they know the difference between good and wrong. And guess what happens? Shame. Not satisfaction, not happiness, not joy. Shame and guilt for the way that they look. And so they rightly go and cover themselves. But notice that it's a feeble attempt. What do they cover themselves with? Fig leaves. You know what happens to a leaf after a while when you pull it off its branch? Yep. It shrivels up and it crumbles away and there's nothing left to it. 
think about that for a moment. The first opportunity, they tried to cover their own sin. They tried to cover their nakedness. Don't we see that in, in the world today? We try through our own works to cover our sin. We try to make ourselves look better than what we really are. And that's exactly what they were doing. They tried to, to make themselves look like they weren't naked as if God wasn't going to recognize these leaves on them. I mean, think about it. So not only does sin now bring an issue between the relationship and that there's shame involved and there's nakedness involved, but more importantly, now it has alienated them from God. Notice what the text says in verse 8. And they heard the sound of the Lord walking in the garden in the cool of the day. Something they used to enjoy. And what do they do now? They hid themselves from the presence of the Lord. They hid themselves from the pre- literally from the face of God. They hid themselves in the trees of the garden so that God wouldn't see them. Sin has now broken that relationship that they had with God the Father. He comes into the, to the garden. He finds them in their guilt. And it's not as if God doesn't know where they're at, but He asks, Adam, where are you? And He starts with the man because the man is the one that's responsible for all things, right? He's the one that's responsible. Adam, where are you? God's questions is not as if He doesn't know. It's given Adam an opportunity to acknowledge his sin and repent. He is showing mercy toward him in that he asked him, where are you? Don't hide yourself. Don't try to cover your sin. Come clean. Come before me and know that I am God. And that's not what Adam does. He hides himself. And then immediately, what does he do? This blame game starts taking place, right? God, if you had not given me that woman, I wouldn't be in this situation I'm in. I mean, that's exactly what he does. And then what does Eve do? It's the serpent's fault. It's not my fault. I mean, I have kids. I have little ones. And, and I tell you, nobody in my house does a lot of things because nobody seems to always make the mistake and always tear things up. But yet I can never find it. It's always somebody else's fault. And this is where it comes from. So parents, be lenient because God was lenient. I mean, I have to tell myself that because it's like somebody did it. Somebody is responsible. And that's like our culture today is that nobody wants to take responsibility for their own actions. It's because of sin. It's because deep-rooted sin in our lives. Always trying to look for a way out. See, the God, the one who created all things for His glory, and now Adam and Eve has sought to be their own God. Instead of living in His perfect place, and that's exactly how you and I live in a relationship outside of God. We live in rebellion against Him. We live by our own rules. And we think that we know what's best and that we can be king of our lives. But I want you to know this. God is just and sin is rebellion against Him. And He cannot let sin just go on. He could not let Adam and Eve, He couldn't just sweep this underneath of the rug and move on. There had to be judgment. There had to be a payment. Notice what happens in verses 14 through 19. Sin is direct rebellion against God. It must be judged. And the first one that God starts with is the serpent. Notice something, though. God said that the punishment for disobedience would be what? Death. You will surely die the moment that you eat. You will surely die. But immediately we are made aware that in God's judgment, there is this veiled grace and mercy upon His creation. He goes to the serpent first. Notice that of the three, the serpent is the only one that's cursed. Cursed to crawl upon his belly the rest of the time. We'll come back to that in a minute when we focus on verse 15. But next is Eve. And he says to Eve, there's going to be increased pain in your childbearing and your desire will be for your husband and he is going to rule over you. 
That's not talking about a sensual desire for her husband. Rather, it means that she wants to assert the authority of her husband. Woman now wants to be the leader of the home. The first feminist movement in the world happened right here. She wants to rule over Adam. She wants to be the one who gives direction to all that takes place. And on top of that, now the husband is going to rule over the wife in a way that God didn't design. He is going to use his thumb and press her down and try to have dominion over her. That is a reversal of the created order. Exactly why Paul states in Ephesians 5, for husbands to what? Love your wives. Instead of ruling over them with dominion, you're to love your wives. And women are to what? Respect the husband. Because that is a reversal. That's getting back to the way God designed it. Ephesians 5, if you read it, that is a reversal of the reversal. So it gets things back in line. That's why it's written to believers. So that we would understand how the created order was supposed to operate. Then he comes to Adam. And he says... Uh, Adam has always been working the ground. He's been cultivating this garden, and it's been great for him. The garden is produced. It's been easy. And now the second curse is announced, and it's upon the ground. Can you imagine? The earth is cursed because of the sin of man. And now man must do everything that he does. He has to eat by the sweat of his brow. Thank you, Adam. We have to work hard now. Hate that. But that's what happens as as a result of his sin. The earth is sent into corruption. Paul talks about that in Romans. And and, and then God says at the end of verse 19, oh yeah, and death will happen. You are dust, and to dust you will return. There is God fulfilling his promise that if you eat, you will die. I believe that had Adam and Eve stayed in the garden in the perfection of God's paradise, they would have never died. They would have continued to multiply and continue to multiply and continue to multiply until the earth was filled and they gladly reflect back to God His radiance. But because of their sin, then death came into the world. Death was not in. It was not a part of the garden. We don't see any animals killed. They were to eat of the fruit At that point, it wasn't until they rebelled against God that when sin entered into the world, that death came. And now we all suffer under that. The greatest fear of man is what? Death. Everybody hates to think about death. We even do things like freeze our bodies nowadays, I guess, if you got a lot of money, to keep yourself from dying. I think that's dying anyway, but whatever. I mean, if you're not living, if you're not out doing things, then you're dead. And so, at some point, every one of us, because of sin, will face the reality of death. Either in your family, your friends, and someday even in ourselves, we're going to face the reality of death. It is God's just judgment upon sin and man's rebellion against him. Now, if the story ended here, it would be quite bleak for humanity. They have fallen out of discord with God. But I want you to take hope. Because God's first act of judgment in the Bible is accompanied by His first promise of salvation. And thus... Genesis 3 gives us the first message of the gospel ever recorded in Scripture. In the midst of casting judgment, we can observe the mercy and the grace of God toward His creation and that He makes a promise in Genesis 3.15, and we're going to spend some time here for just a moment, that the seed of the woman will come and crush crush the head of the serpent. Notice who this is addressed to. Notice verse 15 is addressed to who? The serpent. Okay, he's, it took me a while to see this in, in, in its context. 
He is looking at the serpent and casting judgment and a curse upon the serpent. And he looks at him and he, he does what Babe Ruth does when Babe Ruth stepped up to the plate and he just did like this right here. He held that bat up and then knocks it out of the park. God looks at the serpent and he says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He will, you will bruise or excuse me, he shall bruise your head and you, let me rephrase that. He will crush your head and you will bruise his heel. If your Bible says bruise at the first clause of that, mark it out because the Hebrew word is severe. It is a crushing is what it is. It is a crushing. I love this, and this is where God has just got me so fired up about his word, about him. The word enmity means hostility or hate. It is a declaration of war. And, and, and this is divinely inserted enmity bet- that is meant to drive a wedge between Satan and the woman. It is for her protection against the one who came to destroy her soul. For when she first sinned, she became the enemy of God. Right? She became the enemy of God. She became a partner with Satan against Yahweh. And enmity existed between her and God. But here is the divine saving work of God in their lives where he puts enmity, he drives a wedge between her and the true enemy, which is Satan. He changed her nature so that she would no longer be at war with him, but that she would be at war with Satan. That's what God does to people. Did you know that? Ezekiel tells us that God takes out the heart of stone and puts in a heart of flesh. You see, what God does is when he changes out that heart, he drives a wedge between us and Satan and wickedness and sin so that we will turn on him and we will fight against him. This is what drives me crazy about lazy Christians. It drives me crazy that we're not in the word soaking up God's word because what we're saying is is that I'm going to give in. I'm going to just sit here. You cannot be neutral when you're in the game. You're either for one team or you're for the other. And Christians, we need to be fighting. God has driven a wedge between us and the darkness of this world and there has to be fighting on our part. Paul uses that terminology of a soldier of a runner who has finished the course. And that's what God does right here. It is divinely appointed wedge between us and Satan. Notice, though, that this enmity doesn't stop with just the woman and Satan, but it continues on. It says, He will put enmity between the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman. I believe here in Genesis 3.15 that this seed that is spoken of Um, is both plural and singular in its context. And we're going to look at the plural form of it for just a minute here. So who is this seed of the serpent? The seed of the serpent are those of humanity that God does not set at enmity against Satan. They are those who are at war with God. They are those who are found opposing the purposes of God and His people. Interestingly enough, John calls them a brood of vipers as descendants of their father, Satan, the serpent. We have some examples given to us here in Genesis. First, we have Cain. Cain murders his brother Abel after God warned him of sin sitting at his door. We have Lamech who boasts about his evil. Then we have all those who mocked Noah who rejected the word of God and were destroyed in the flood. Genesis 6-5 gives us a clear picture of the descendants of Satan. It says, Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth, and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart were only evil continually. They're evil in the sight of God. And the rest of the Bible continues to unveil to us the men who are at war with God. But there's also those who are not at enmity with God. And they are the seed of the woman. So in a plural sense of the word seed here, it refers to the woman's descendants. 
who have placed themselves at war with Satan. It's those whom God has elected, those whom God has chosen from the nations and brought to Himself. We see them come out. Eve bears three sons. But only Seth is the godly line that follows through. From Seth we get Noah. From Noah's three sons. Yet only Shem is the one who brings the godly offspring of Abraham whom God then covenants with. It is through Abraham that he's going to bless the nations. But there's two descendants of Abraham. But Ishmael is rejected. And Romans 9 tells us that not all descendants of Abraham are of God. Notice what, let me just read it. It's not as though the promises of God have failed, for they are not all Israel who are descended from Israel, neither are they all children, because they are Abraham's descendants. But through Isaac, your descendants will be named. And so we follow the, the godly lineage. The seed of the woman comes through the covenant that is with Isaac. And we follow this seed down through the ages, and we see that through Isaac, the Christ comes in the New Testament. And this seed, Christ, is the head of the posterity of the woman and of those who have been gathered from the nations, who have an enmity between them and Satan. And so we can observe throughout history of the world this great spiritual war that exists between the people of God, which are the seed of the woman, and the people of Satan, which are the seed of the serpent. Abel is killed by Cain. Ishmael and Isaac, who are still warring today. Uh, the Egyptians plot to kill all of the Hebrew, the Israelite children, male children. Esther and Haman in the book of Esther. There is this war between the, the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman throughout the whole Bible. This is awesome. Just to see this wonderful display because in a minute we're going to get to something even greater. The massive persecution of the church today is continuing this war between the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman. <clears throat> so we've seen the plural usage of it, but there's also a singular usage of the word seed in Genesis 3.15. Paul says in Galatians 3.16, now the promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. He does not say and to seeds as referring to many, but rather to one and to your seed, that is Christ. So Paul interprets Genesis 3, 15 and, and, and the Abrahamic covenant and the seed that is to come through there for us. And so what we see here is that there is a great enmity that exists between Christ and Satan. John tells us in John 10.10 10, that the thief comes to kill, steal, and destroy. But Jesus has what? Come to do what? Give us life and give it to us more abundantly. There's a, there's a disparity between the two and what they've come to do. And so this singular usage is supported by the next clause. Notice what it says in here. He shall crush your head and you will bruise his heel. <clears throat> the writer uses the singular pronouns, he and you, and I'm not going to take you through English, but it's important. He means the single seed of the woman who's going to crush the head of the you, meaning the one Satan who is the single seed that is talked about there. I hope you're tracking with me. It's important to notice this um, because... The victory over Satan is won right here in Genesis 3.15. This is so dynamic, so important for us to grasp. It's a victory that comes through God's judgment. So God is pouring out His judgment, and in the midst of that judgment, there is this bright, shining light that says, one day, the seed of the woman Christ is going to come through and He is going to stomp on the head of the serpent and He's going to crush him and eradicate him forever.
Notice it's the seed of the woman. Not the man. The first announcement of the supernatural birth of the Lord Jesus Christ. Galatians 4.4 says, God sent forth His Son born of a woman. He was born of the Virgin Mary. And so Jesus comes into the world. He lives a perfect life of obedience to His Father in heaven. All the while, Satan uses the Jewish religious sect of the day to derail Him, but to no avail until the perfect day comes. And that day, Acts tells us in Acts 2.23 that it was the predestined plan and foreknowledge of God that that would happen on that day at that moment. Not a moment sooner, not a moment later. God had a plan for the salvation of His people back in Genesis that would come through His judgment upon the world. 24-hour period, Jesus is arrested, He's tried He's crucified. You say, wait a minute. But the text says that he's going to crush the head of the serpent, and the serpent's only going to bruise him. Yep. We just talked about that on Sunday. Amen? We just talked about that. Because Jesus lays in that tomb for three days, he's just wounded. Satan thinks he's dead. He's rejoicing, probably like he did when Eve, Eve sinned against God and rebelled against God. Satan's probably over there rejoicing at the fact he's, cru- he's doomed. I got him. He's finished. He forgot about Gen- He forgot to go back and read what happens here, that he's about to be crushed. And on the third day, what happens? What happens? Resurrection. Resurrection. Don't say that timidly. It's a resurrection. He comes out of the grave. The one thing that Satan had on humanity was death. And Jesus burst forth right out of the grave and said, not anymore. Oh, grave, where is your victory? Where is your sting? No more. He crushes him. You're done. You're finished. The suffering on the cross, a flesh wound. It's a bruise, but he comes bursting forth and he destroys any hope that Satan had on humanity. Isaiah prophesied, he was wounded for our transgressions. And notice, he was bruised for our iniquities. He was bruised for our iniquities. I love that. I love that. The bruising judgment, notice here, at the cross... God's wrath was poured out upon Jesus. Once again, judgment. And through judgment, God's mercy shines and His glory is on display as He brings salvation to His people. Man. Salvation and judgment. That was, we deserved. I hope y'all get that. That should have been us because we are the rebellious ones, continually rebellious against our great God. And so we see in Genesis 3.15 this promise of salvation. The crushing of the head of Satan. And, and And I think that is in two parts. I think first when Jesus conquered the grave and and death, that when He rose from the dead, that He took away any sort of ammunition that Satan had against God's elect, against God's people. Took it away. We don't have to fear death anymore. It all belongs to Christ. And then secondly, that when Christ comes back, and that second return, when He comes back and He delivers us up and and He saves us in that final salvation, He is going to vanquish Satan into a pit for eternity. What a wonderful day for us to long for. What a a day to rejoice for. What a day to long for in our hearts. That one day these, these bones that are deteriorating, one day these sicknesses that we have, the sin that just keeps coming back day after day after day after day in our lives will be gone. And we'll be back in that garden in intimate fellowship with our Father who loves us with a great love.
Notice the hope that comes out of this promise. And I I pray tonight that you see the hope that comes through Jesus Christ's death, burial, and resurrection and conquering that death for you. I hope you see it because I I think Adam saw it. I think Adam and Eve saw it. I I believe they're going to be in heaven one day because of what happens next in verse 20. Look at verse 20. It says, The man called his wife's name Eve. For the first, this is where we see Eve. We've we've seen woman before. Now we see that Adam calls his wife's name Eve. And why? Why does he call her Eve? Because she is the mother of all living. Now I want you to notice something. They don't have any kids. So he can't possibly be talking about kids that they already have. Because there aren't any. There aren't any others around. What in the world is Adam talking about? That she's going to be the mother of all living. I think Adam understood very well what God meant in Genesis 3.15. That they were going to live for a time. And there would be one who was going to come and deliver them from their oppression to sin. And so he says to his wife, your name's going to be Eve because from you will come all living people. He would have never said that if he didn't believe in the promise that God had given him. There was no reason for him to have hope without relying upon what God had already said he was going to do. And that there were going to be seeds that were going to come from the woman. And so Adam believed he had hope That God was going to do exactly what God said he was going to do. And notice, further hope for Adam and Eve is that God covers them. We see the death of the first animal in the Garden of Eden, whereby eventually we will see through the sacrificial system that it's a portrayal, a foreshadowing of Christ. But God covers them in His way. Not with these leaves that are going to deteriorate. And then he does something in verse 23 that I like to call grace. Yes, grace existed in the Old Testament. God sends them out of the garden. Why does God send them out of the garden? So that they will not eat of the tree of life. Emphatically says that. So so that they will not eat of the tree of life and then they will live in eternal damnation. They will live in an eternal state of damnation because of their sin if they eat of the tree of life. And so God in His mercy sends them out. And they don't gripe. They don't complain. There is hope before them. They know that by going out, there's not the temptation to eat of that tree. And so they go forth and they multiply and they multiply. And God, through the seed of the woman, brings about salvation in Jesus Christ. For us today. God's rich mercy. Adam and Eve had hope. Through the promise that they would one day be delivered from their sin. There is hope for you tonight if you're here and you're living in sin and you're in rebellion against God. God loves you with a love that you cannot imagine. A great, loving Father who wants to wrap his arms around you and bring you in as one of his children. If you will, but put your faith in him. I think Genesis 1 through 3 can be summed up like this. God is holy, just, and righteous, the ruler of the universe. Man is sinful and in rebellion against a holy God. And must endure the consequences, the judgment, the just judgment of God's wrath upon them for that sin. But God 
demonstrates his own love for us and that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. We can see in Genesis 3.15 the promise of God to deliver his people. And then how are we going to respond to that? Adam could have walked out of the garden, lived his life the way he wanted to live it, but he didn't. He believed in the promise of a coming Messiah, someone who was going to deliver them. You can walk out of here tonight and you can live your life just like you've always lived it, being your own God, doing your own thing the way you want to do it. But I want to tell you that there is judgment that is to come for living in rebellion against God. But you don't have to. Today can be the day of salvation for you. Put your faith in Jesus Christ. Believe in Him for salvation and you will be saved. Jesus Christ came to die and to be a ransom for many. To bring us into His fold. And so I want to call sinners here tonight, those who are in rebellion against God, I call you tonight to repent. And put your faith in Jesus Christ. Don't let the enmity that is between you and God continue one more day. It's not worth it. Satan's going to lose. Is that not the greatest story? Let me tell you something. If you read Genesis 1 through 3 and you don't walk away from there in awe of God and just broken before him and want to just worship him for it, something's wrong. You're at enmity against him if you can do that. It has to stir us up. The gospel must awaken us, and it's right here in the beginning of the Bible. So what can we take away from this as I close? If it is the greatest story, and I believe it is, then tell somebody. Y'all knew I was going to go here, right? Man, I tell you, my heart burns for the nations. There are people every day dying and going to hell separated from God. We have the greatest story known to man. I have read some great books in my life. Man, I've read some great books. I've seen some great movies. Nothing, nothing compares to what's written here. Taste and see that the Lord is good. And if he's good, we should want to share it with everybody. Secondly, Christians, our lives should be marked with the signs of spiritual warfare. We better be fighting. Because if we're not fighting, we're losing. We ought to have a hatred for the sin that creeps into our lives every day. I hate it. I, I, I made the mistake or the God graciousness of listening to, I, I, I listened to John Piper's podcast and he talked about speeding and sin. Yeah. I'm putting my cruise control on. I'm like, 55, baby. I'm doing 55. But we don't even think about it because we, we just, that's just life, right? I mean, that's, that's just the way we do things. And, and so sin, just beca- we become inoculated to sin in our culture today. That we don't even look at it as sin anymore, even though God's word says it is. Our lives need to be characterized with constant war against sin so that we continue to drive a wedge further and further and further and further away as we grow closer and closer and closer to Christ. And then thirdly, are we living like Jesus is coming back? See, I I believe Genesis 3, Adam believed Genesis 3.15, I believe Genesis 3.15, and because I believe Genesis 3.15, and then Christ did come in the New Testament, guess what? When Jesus said, I'm going to prepare a place and I'm coming back to get you, We better be living like we believe that because it's going to happen. I know people have been saying it for years. Oh, people have been saying it for years. I grew up hearing it since I was eight years old. Oh, Jesus is coming back. Jesus is coming back. And you know what happens to us? We're like, yeah, whatever. 
Yeah, it's going to happen. But when? Are we living with an expectancy that Christ is going to come back in the very next minute of our lives? If we did, it would change the way we act and talk and walk and deal with people that are all around us every day. Because eternity is at stake because He's coming back. And once He comes back, it's over. Then eternity begins and there's only one of two places that people are going to end up. So always have our eyes. I think it was Jonathan Edwards that said that he wished that all people had eternity stamped on their eyeballs so that when they looked at people, all they saw was what was going to happen when Christ returned. We need to be looking for that city. In closing, though we still struggle with sin every day, and though the earth is futile and wicked, and abounds and things are crumbling around us, we can stand upon the promise of Christ. We can stand and have hope for tomorrow. You see, no matter, we, we can stand up and say, no matter what happens to this body, Danny, wherever he went, no matter what happens, I'm going to praise the Lord. No matter what happens to my job, no matter what happens to my finances, no matter what happens, I'm going to stand upon the promises of God because they are sure and firm and he will never fail me. That's what Genesis 3 tells me. God promised us salvation. It happened in Jesus in one day. He's going to rescue us and restore paradise. Amen? Let's, let's pray. Father, thank you. Father, thank you so much for your word. God, I pray tonight that you have been heard and not me. I pray that your word would just sink into our hearts, God, and that, God, we would just be ignited with a passion for your glory. God, thank you for Jesus. Thank you for rescuing me for my sin and for myself. I pray if there's one here tonight that doesn't know you, who has never repented, God, I pray that your Holy Spirit would just wrap around them and draw them in and convict them of their sin. God, make them restless tonight. God, make us as Christians long for the return of our Savior and that we would live our lives in light of that. I ask this in the name of your beautiful Son, Jesus. Amen. You're dismissed.